Avast, G-Mateys. It's me, Kevin Smith. Jason Mewes. Have you ever wanted to get lost on the high seas with Jay and Silent Bob? Well, now you're going to have your chance. Go to jayandsilentbobcruiseaskew.com right now and sign up for Jay and Silent Bob's Cruise Askew. Mm-hmm. What are you waiting for, man? Get lost at sea with Jay and Silent Bob. Let's do it. Welcome to uh, a random, somewhat impromptu episode of Black Man Beyond. Uh, my name is Mark Bernard. Uh, hi, ho, hey, ho. It's just me. It's just me here, you guys. Um, you know, Kevin is off in Kevinlandia doing Kevin things, as one does. Um, uh, I'm, I'm going to assume that many of you have, have seen uh, the People magazine uh, story about Kev and his, uh, his journey towards mental health. If you haven't seen it, um, you absolutely should. It's uh, it is a incredibly wonderful, incredibly helpful, incredibly sage and insightful um, diary of his journey, and explaining you know how he feels, how he felt, what his process is, and you know where he thinks he is and where he thinks he's going. Um, if you haven't seen it, you should. It's beautiful, um, and I'm so proud of Kevin for doing that, and for a getting the help that he thought he needed, and then b talking about it to other people who may or may not um, be in touch with their own sense of mental health. Um, again, you should go do that. Um, that is the extent of the plugging of Kevin things that I will do. Other than you saw the view askew thing, the cruise askew, you should come. We're going to have a blast. My first cruise. I've been on a cruise before. So what better way to do it than surrounded by, you know, a thousand people who um, are there because they want to see us. That seems fun, right? As opposed to a bunch of strangers. It's a bunch of strangers with like-minded interests that aren't just drinking. Although that could be a like my interest as well, but hey, hey everybody, I hope you're well. Um, I hope what what is this? This is the end of April. I was about to say I hope your summer's been going great. It's not summer yet. I know that it feels like it, but it isn't. Um, it is, however, a weird season of flux, um, specifically for me, specifically for uh, anybody that you know who writes things in Hollywood. The Writers Guild of America, both the East and the West Coast contingents are uh, the contract that we have with the uh, the motion picture uh, television producing alliance or whatever, the AMPTP is the, the, uh, the acronym. Um, it expires every three years, uh, on May 1st, uh, we, we renegotiate our deal with the studios, which basically means like, here's how much money we get for writing an episode of TV. Here's how much money we get um, in residuals for writing said episode of TV. Um, here's what we, uh, and by what we get, I mean the minimums, like there's a floor that they can't pay you less than you can always negotiate for more than, but it's the, the, the bottom. That's the important part, um, in trying to keep, uh, people from getting screwed <clears throat> more than they want to be screwed. And, and more importantly, it keeps writing for television, a career that's sustainable. Um, it had always been a pretty decent job. Um, uh, especially in the in the heady days of the 80s and 90s and 2000s when there was only network TV um, or only cable TV and they could run ads during each of those programs and the ads brought you the revenue. And so <clears throat> then the wonders of syndication where you made your 100 episodes of the X-Files and then you could sell it to syndication and that was another revenue stream for the studios. And then the Writers Guild has over the years 
um, fought to make sure that the writers who created that stuff get to take part in the success of that stuff. Um, the residual structure is what they call it. Um, and so every three years, we, we, we have to sit down with the studios and fight a little bit to get what we think is, is a fair uh, slice of that pie. Um, the last time the Writers Guild went on strike, which was 2007, 2008, I believe, um, it was mostly over the internet. It was mostly over the, the beginning of streaming. Um, at that point, the studio said, well, streaming is just, you know, where we're putting is marketing stuff. It's where we're putting like, you know, whatever, free, free content that we created just to help sell the show. We're not going to put episodes up. We're not going to put, God, we would never put a whole series up. Um, it's just as promotional. And then, you know, we're living where we live, living when we live, we know how that went. And so it was very important to fight for, you know, jurisdiction over the internet because somebody at the time saw down the road, not that far and said, well, if you can do this with marketing stuff, how long until you put this online, which they did. And so now we are, we are, uh, we are facing a television landscape that's different than it had ever been. Um, streaming, the most convenient way that any of us watch television, um, functionally broke television as we know it. In that, um, instead of being able to, to make money by selling ads, instead of being able to, to make money by selling into syndication, the streamers, especially the ones who produce original content, at this point, that's all of them, um, can really only make money um, by subscriptions. And that's not that much money. Um, not in the way that it used to be. Um, don't get me wrong. Netflix is doing fine. Netflix has, you know, 200 million some, some odd subscribers. And that means that every month, all of those 200 million people are getting hit for between, you know, 10, 15, sometimes 20 bucks a month. That's a lot of money. So um, the, the studios at present are saying that the pandemic and streaming have affected their income streams or whatever, and we don't want to cut anybody in for any more because we're struggling out there despite... Again, being able to charge people, you know, two billion dollars a month um, in a, in gross revenue. So, nevertheless, that is what the strike, if there's a strike, is going to be about. It's going to be about making sure that that writers like me and like my friends and like my colleagues and like the eleven thousand of us that are out there working in Hollywood um, can 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 have a career. Um, and can can make enough money. And listen, I'm not going to tell you what the, the the dollar figures are because it's it is already ridiculous, and I know that it's a king's ransom. Except that we are living. If you're living in Los Angeles, you're living in a place where it costs a king's ransom to live. Um, so functionally, it is not that much money. Um, I don't know where you live, but I'm pretty sure that wherever that is, it's not going to cost you 1.5 million dollars for a three bedroom house that does not have a helipad, that does not have a boat launch, that does not have a trans-dimensional portal. It is just a house. Um, that's what real estate costs out here. Everything costs more out here. Um, but it's a company town. And so the company town has to pay company wages. Um, but functionally, that's what it is. It is trying to carve for ourselves a piece of the pie that makes doing this work and living where we live um, sustainable and tenable. Um, it'd be great to be rich, but not asking for rich, asking for fairly compensated is where we are. Um, so our contract uh, expires at midnight on uh, May the 1st. We'll see what happens. 
there's there's aggressive negotiations going on right now between the studios and the Writers Guild Negotiating Committee. Um, whatever you're hearing about the strike, and you know, if you're the kind of person who reads, you know, the the, the entertainment um, blogs and websites and the trade magazines, you know, they will all say one thing or another. There, most of it is speculation, if not all of it is speculation, because nobody's talking, um, at least to the public. I hope they're talking to each other because that would be great. Um, but uh, it's it is a it is a fraught time for folks like me who are staring down the barrel of months of unemployment. Uh, you know, it, the last strike went for a hundred days, and that is a long time to not be making money, especially in a place as expensive as Los Angeles. But it's it's a fight that needs fighting. It's a fight that that you know the Writers Guild is always. Um, I'm not going to say down for because nobody wants a strike, but they they are, to the best of my knowledge, the only guild or union in Hollywood that's ever struck, um, because we have a, a pretty solidified um, membership who all believe in what we do and the value of what we do, and so we'll stand for it and we'll fight for it. Um, the fight's different every time. The internet, you know, pension, healthcare. Um, you know, reproductive care is part of healthcare. All of those, you know, sort of things that you'd think you wouldn't have to fight for against, you know, billion dollar companies. Um, I think we're asking for two pennies in the dollar, which doesn't seem a lot for the people who make up all of the stuff that you watch on TV and in movies. Um, so yeah, that's what's happening, at least in my world. I, I, I am lucky in that I do get to write other things that are not um, just movies or TV. Um, I do get to work on video games, which it's not covered by the Writers Guild, so I can work on it. I get to write comic books, which not covered by the Writers Guild, so I can work on it. Um, and I can have some revenue coming in for however long this strike will last. Um, but it's, it is nowhere near ideal. Nobody wants it. Um, but that's what makes it hard, and the hard things are often worth doing. So um, that is, that is, I suppose, what passes for personal news other than like, hey, you know, we're still out there touring Splinter. We were at the Overlook Film Festival uh, last month. We've got another film festival coming up in, in uh, June that I can't quite say which one it is yet. I'm supposed to wait for them to announce. Um, we have plans to bring it to Comic-Con, um, not as part of the film festival, but just as we'll have a panel. We'll show the short, we'll talk about it. Um, I'll Shanghai. Sorry, not going to say that anymore. I will uh, I will wrangle as many members of the cast and crew as, as I can to come down to San Diego for at least a day and uh, and talk about and talk about our little movie. Um, but yeah, that's uh, that's it. That's it. That's all I got. We're going to talk about a little bit of news. CinemaCon is currently going on. Um, I think it's starting to wrap up, but uh, we'll talk about the things that got announced and things that got first looks of. Um, Talk about a couple of the trailers that came out of there. We're going to talk about the Mandalorian uh, season finale. Um, and then we're going to talk about the Star Trek Picard series finale, um, which I have all of the feelings about. Um, and I think uh, because Banff Man is a little under the weather, um, Dilf Man is, uh, is standing by on deck to talk to, uh, talk to Picard, talk Picard with me. Um, but yeah, I think, you know, like this is going to be a chill, this is going to be a chill afternoon, you guys, or evening. 
or whatever time it is, wherever you happen to be. Um, we have uh, turned off the super chat because, yeah, we know what happened last time. Uh, so yeah, not gonna do that. Um, I'm not looking at the chat because I'd rather just talk to you. Hi, everybody. How are you? How's your day going? It's all right? Excellent. So how do you mother for me? Um, but before we get into anything else, before we get into the meat of the, the, the nitty and the gritty, um, I, I do have an ad to read. Um, and it's this is a weird one, and I'll tell you why. Because it is both incredibly timely, and I'm not entirely sure right for this audience. Um, but if you are a sports ball fan person, um, specifically the football sports fan person, specifically American football sports fan person, then you'll know that today uh, is the first day of the NFL draft, which is when you know, the teams get to choose what players are going to play for them. So thankfully, uh, the good folks at Manscaped have an NFL draft theme ad. So let's just get into it. I'm going to read it. Well, you know, we're not going to talk about it because it'll say everything it needs to say. And then we're going to get on with the rest of our show. Okay, you guys? Um, and they say, cue uh, NFL draft sound if possible. I don't know what that sound is. Um, I'm assuming it's like some horns. Maybe. I don't know. Some John Teshi. Um, yeah, whatever. Um, hey, kids. The NFL draft is here. And the most exciting prospect is the prospect of being perfectly groomed head to toe with our friends at Manscaped. Manscaped has long had elite downfield play with their lawnmower 4.0, but in 2023, they have the rookie sensation Beard Hedger to ensure the face of your franchise is a pretty one. This one-two punch of men's grooming is the best acquisition for any home GM. So go to manscaped.com and save some salary cap with our code FATMAN20 for 20% off plus free shipping. Uh, again, remember, 20% off free shipping with the code FATMAN20 at manscaped.com. This year, Manscaped can help you make the sexy pick without forgetting about your big uglies up front. That's right, the Beard Hedger and Lawnmower 4.0 are a franchise-changing combo that will have you looking at your roster with pride. Everyone who saw the Super Bowl, hopefully some of you at the very least know where Super Bowl is, uh, knows what can happen with poorly managed grass. That type of ball-playing field quality would never happen with the Lawnmower 4.0. This elite electric trimmer is a lock for first-round talent. Just look at its explosive talent with RPM. All that power, with all that power, the lawnmower is still the most nibble on the field with its skin-safe technology that reduced your nicks and snags while making all the right cuts on hair. In the season of trimming the roster, Manscaped will make sure you're cutting all the right players and not any important pieces to your D. <laughs> defense D, nice. Now, now you've done the dirty work. Now it's time to make sure you look good out there with a beard hedger and its 20 positions of precision. This powerful cordless trimmer helps you customize your look with a rotary wheel that has 20 lengths while only using one guard. In football, having a deep O-line might be a good thing, but in the bathroom, more than one guard is just a mess. If you haven't upgraded your grooming tools already, head to manscaped.com for a champion worth roster reset. So, Get 20% off and free shipping with the code FATMAN20 at manscaped.com. That's 20% off with free shipping at manscaped.com and use the code FATMAN20 at checkout. Go from Mr. Irrelevant to a first-round pick with Manscaped. Thank you to the good folks of, at Manscaped for supporting, continually supporting this podcast and our daffy-ass ad reads. Thank you, guys. And gals. And theys. And thems. Everybody. Thanks. Um, so, uh, let's talk... Mando. Did you guys watch the Mando? I mean, I'm sure you did. It's it's a couple weeks old by now. 
Um, I will say that the Mandalorian season finale was a pretty strong episode. Um, maybe the best episode of a season that I didn't find overwhelmingly, um, I'm not going to say enjoyable, but just substantive. Um, I, 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 and we spoke about it. We spoke, we spoke about it a couple of times here on the podcast that it felt a bit rudderless. It felt a bit directionless. It felt a bit, you know, we're just going to go and do this story, whether it adds up to anything or not. We're just going to go check in with these characters, whether they continue the, the, the threat or not. Um, you know, and so to finally get to engage with uh, with Darth Jetpack, Moff Gideon, um, you know, is great. Like, I will happily take Giancarlo Esposito anytime I can in my science fiction and or fantasy. Um, and so when he's there, which he is very heavily in the final episode, um, and uh, he's great. He's always great. Um, I kind of wish he was the bad guy for the season um, so that there was actually some threat and some pressure placed on uh, Din Djarin and uh, and wee baby Grogu, who's, you know, 200 years old or whatever, still can't talk. Um, and so, like, by the time you get to the end of it, it's like, oh, yeah, no, this was fun. Like, I dug it. It's a, it's a good episode. There's a lot of action. The action's great. Um, you know, the, it, it does sort of advance some story, I guess, in that, you know, the Mandalorians have Mandalore back, and, and you know, Din Djarin adopts Grogu as his, I guess, you know, teen ward, <laughs> you know, fight crime together. Um, you know, Din Grogu and uh, Din Djarin are hanging out in the house by the frontier and floating frogs and sipping sarsaparilla and waiting for adventure to cross their, their front door. Um, and that's, you know, great. It's a nice tidy bow. I, I just, it, I, my, my quibble has always been, I'm not sure why we needed any of the other episodes to get us here. Um, because it didn't seem like a culmination as much as it seemed like a good episode. And that's fine, I suppose. Um, but that's a that's a long time to be, you know, it's a long road to walk, especially if we didn't need to walk that road at all. Um, it didn't feel like, again, like a culmination. It just felt like an episode. Um, but, you know, and hey, I'm always here for Katie Sackhoff as, as Bo-Katan. I'm always here for, for um, you know, Giancarlo Esposito is Moff Gideon. I'm always here for whomever is in the Mandalorian costume at, at any given time. And, you know, Pedro Pascal's voice chiming in from wherever he is in the world. Um, I just, yeah, I, I, I continue to kind of want more um, from this show. Um, as I've sort of felt from the beginning. And it's, the, and the show's giving you a lot, but... You know, it's giving you a lot of things. I just don't know if it's quite giving you enough things because I was not. Oh, hey. Oh, hi, Mark. Hey, Will Wilkins. What's up? Um, I just want I hope you don't mind my interjecting. I just wanted to ask a question as a writer. Okay. Um, because I, I did a rewatch of Mando one and two seasons before three. And the one thing that I got out of it is that you know, it actually still follows the same pattern of slow sluggishness and then a fast ramp up at the end. But as a writer, how did you feel about the buildup uh, of the Darksaber, if you will, only to, spoilers, have it kind of crushed at the end and become a non-thing? I mean, the Darksaber was so weird because 
you know, it, it, it's another it's another element of canon that I don't have an emotional attachment to because, again, I and I mentioned it before. I didn't watch all of Clone Wars. I didn't watch any of Rebels. Um, so so the whole Mandalorian war and the Bo-Katan and the offshoots and the the you know, the, the, the weird church state of the Mandalorian society and like all of that, you know, I like I understood it, but it didn't mean anything to me. And, you know, there's there's a there's a bit and I want to say like episode seven or eight of this season of Mandalorian where like, you know, uh, Mando is explaining that like, well, here's what happened. Um, I was kidnapped by a creature and I lost the darksaber of that creature. And then Bo-Katan killed that creature. And so then she by rights has the, the darksaber. It's like, bro, you could have said that anything. You could have just given her the sword. You know, why does it have to be this weird like they they draw this out. Like I have to without the sword, I can't leave my people. You can have it. You earned it. But he saves it for the most dramatic moment. You know, like you knew this for four episodes, man. Like, and so it it, it was never clear to me what uh, how important it was. It was never clear to me really how functional it was because it was as functional, I suppose, as it needed to be in any given episode. Especially since Din Jaren couldn't really use it very well. You know, so like as a as a totem, it kind of didn't do the thing I needed it to do. And then for somebody to just like, oh, I just broke it with my hand. And they're like, but what? what? Well, <laughs> like, I mean, I, I did I did pick up because I'm I'm very attuned to audio. And so I did pick up that one of the things that Moff Gideon had, like there was some, I don't want to say cybernetic help there, but his armor definitely had some servos and gears in to provide a little more strength. Yeah, it was very like Iron Man. Yeah. Whereas their other Mandalorians didn't feel particularly Iron Man. They just feel like we got jetpacks. That's cool, right? We're just knights, knights in the, in white jetpacks. Um, whereas, yeah, Gideon was. I'm full on Iron Man. I'm I'm the Iron Monger. I'm just crushing things. Um, and so, like, I get it, but it just it all feels very anticlimactic in a way, you know, it all feels very like, all right, we're going to have this final battle where all these Mandalorians are flying around in the air against all these, you know, clone troopers or whatever. And I guess like none of that is the story that I'm emotionally invested in. I'm invested in Grogu and Din Djarin. And the more you take me away from that story, the less I care about what happens. Um, and so like, yeah, I mean, Darksaber, sure. I guess it's cool until it isn't. I guess it's cool until you just get rid of it for reasons why I don't know, you know, there's a lot of just, nah. I guess like, why did Grogu need a, a weird artificial suit to walk around in when he had a perfectly good floating thing that also did the job easier and better? Because he can't grab people's arms and tell them no with that. Yeah. And also Literally, how does he do all that articulating with just two joysticks <laughs> and some buttons, man? Yeah. Like I guess to give Mando a hand, like, oh, I, I lifted you off the ground. Yes, yes, yes. Oh, okay, I suppose. Like, just let the kid talk. Mm-hmm. <laughs> have some language. Well, also, he uses the force. He can lift, easily lift, you know, Mando off the ground with the force. So, I don't know. I don't know. Like, just threads that didn't seem to go anywhere. Like, we went through the whole Dr. Pershing episode, I guess, to meet... To, to, to re-engage with that, you know, woman who was Moff Gideon's spy. Yeah, the communications and, officer, Elaine something. 
Right. And so, and she seems to exist solely to tell Moff Gideon, uh, the Mandalorians are back on Mandalore. And he's like, no, that's bad. I'll deal with it. Like, could have been an email. Like, we definitely didn't need an episode, a complete episode devoted to this woman simply so that she can drop some plot in the finale. Um, I think, and if you don't mind me sharing my opinion, um, my whole problem with the third season of Mando, don't get me wrong, I still will take any Star Wars I can get. My only problem with it is that I feel like with whatever machinations are going on behind the scenes in the business side of things, the whole season just feels like a setup season for something else. It's for all the other storylines they're telling so they can give us little teases so they can get one character to be able to say Thrawn, for example, you know, that's just my take. Yeah. I mean, it's, I, they keep trying to make Thrawn happen. And again, never watch rebels doesn't mean anything to me. You know, that's, that's the, that's the pitfall. That's the trap of continuity, right? Like if it doesn't mean anything to you, it's just words and you can't hang emotion on words to a stranger, you know, like that's dealing with legacy media. That's, that's the biggest trap of it, which is like, oh, we're just going to mention this and this is going to be cool. Oh, we're just going to show this and this will be cool. So, but if it doesn't mean anything, if you haven't in the front story established why I should care, then it's just, you know, it's just sort of deep nerd bait, which, you know, I don't always respond to, um, to a certain degree, rarely do I respond to because it's not drama. You know, you're not you're not giving me conflict. It's just, do you remember this? Remember this? And if you don't, then it's just kind of hollow. Um, you know, I and I and I remember having my problems with season one of Mandalorian, but what I remember liking the most about it was it required no previous knowledge of Star Wars. Like you could just like we're rolling with this. This guy's gonna do some cool stuff. You found this baby, the baby's cute as hell. You know, we're going to go from planet to planet. We're going to discover some stuff. We're going to learn the lesson and then we're going to move on. And then the more we started to engage with, you know, the old canon, with Clone Wars, with the prequels, you know, the more we started to get kind of deep in those weeds, it just got less emotional for me. Like, you know, I'm always here for Rosario Dawson, but Ahsoka Tano doesn't really mean that much to me. You know, but if you, if you then just reintroduce that character in a cool way and a Jedi who walked away from the... From the from the faith from the path, I'm like, okay, that's interesting. Let's talk about that. But it never really does because you know she's in there for an episode, episode and a half, and then she sort of dances out. You know, like Luke Skywalker. Oh, that's cool. I guess because Luke's doing cool stuff. Like that's neat. But we also know what happens there, so we kind of know where he's going to go. And then the next time we see him, like he's just like the most boring teacher of a very new school. You know, in a completely different show, <laughs> you know, and, and and time is weird in this show. And then I remember hearing, you know, I think we talked about it, that Favreau said that, like, yeah, it's been it was two years or something between when Luke dropped when 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 Mando dropped off Grogu with Luke and when they reunited. Okay. I, like, I, I like two years. I like that you say reunited when realistically speaking, it was like Luke just let the auto ship drop the kid off after he got rejected. <laughs> yeah. So you rude. know, it's so rude. Um, so it's just, it's the emotional engagement that I have with the show. Um, I struggle with to your point. 
and I agree with you. I'm always here for a little bit of Star Wars. Um, but I just, I, I wish it came to me with the same amount of rigor that I'm coming to it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so far it, it, it hasn't, you know, with exceptions. Like there have been great episodes of Mandalorian. There have been great scenes of Mandalorian. Um, you know, just as there were great episodes of, of, uh, of Kenobi, just as all of Andor was great. Right. Like, which, which is possible. <laughs> and, and that's what makes, I think, in a way, what we got with with uh, the third season here of Mandalorian, it's practically coming off of the heels of an amazing story that was told in the first season of Andor, you know, where we yeah. see great, compelling, dramatic Star Wars can be done. Yeah, it, 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 it's hard to exist in the shadow of that particular show when you're off trying to make your own Star Wars. And I get it, you know, and, and watching, you know, the the Dr. Pershing episode try to be its version of Andor um, to varying degrees of success. Like I, I at least dug it for the for the uh, for the attempt at it. I don't think it got there. But like once you see what Star Wars can do, it's hard to just sort of accept sometimes what Star Wars is. Um, right now, I just imagine that that Bam fan JC is somewhere going, sensing a deep disturbance in the sports force and wanting to claw this show back. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's like you picked the week that I'm sick to talk about Mando. I'm like, well, hey man, don't get sick. That's <laughs> right? on you and your immune system. That's not a conversation I need to be a part of. Um, you know, but I'm I'm curious about the Ahsoka show. You know, because again, always here for Rosario. Um, I thought that first trailer we talked about it, that, that trailer that they dropped at Celebration looked great. You know, I don't know who Thrawn is, really, but I'm hoping that the show will tell me why I should be afraid of him or excited to see him or whatever. Like, you know, assuming these things are are understood is is the sort of classic mistake of legacy media. And just because you recognize a thing doesn't mean that it's doing its job. Nostalgia is a hell of a drug unless you don't have any nostalgia for it. Mm-hmm. And then it's just, well, that didn't do anything. So it's the weird dank weed that you smoked that didn't get you high. And you're like, well, you didn't do the thing I was promised you would do. <laughs> so what's the point? Um, so yeah, that was, that was my Mando. That was my Mando take. Um, I liked this episode, but I didn't particularly like this season. Um, which, you know, again, Everybody's mileage may vary. You might have loved it, and I'm glad you did. I hope you did, um, because this world is just shitty enough that if we can find the things that we like and rally around them, all the better. Um, just didn't quite work for me. Fair enough. You know what did fucking work for me, though? Hey, man, I know where you're going. Um, season three of Picard. Um, now... It's interesting to talk about season three of Picard, the series finale, and all of the season entirely in the same brace as talking about Star Wars, because both of these things are operating from a place of nostalgia. I mean, Star Wars is almost entirely powered by by nostalgia. Um, And as was the third season of Picard, like it was, let's get the band back together. Let's get everybody who was ever on the bridge of the Starship Enterprise and the next generation back again for one last ride. Um, and the sort of measured way that this season assembled that crew once again, the surprising path that it took with some of those characters, the, the you know, and the stuff that 
I didn't even think possible, but like, oh, you got Ro Laren back? Like, and you gave her a fantastic episode. And, you know, we're we're gonna spoil some shit here, guys. It's been it's been a week. Um, so we're not gonna deep spoil, but we're gonna mention some things that happened. So if you're gonna watch Picard, I hope you did. If you didn't, maybe just kind of go off screen for a while. Um, but to bring her back and have her, you know, render that service that she renders to, to Jean-Luc Picard and the, and the crew of the Titan um, is wonderful, you know, and it's, it's, it, it, it harkens back to a relationship that even the next generation never got to really deepen in the way that I think it wanted to. Um, you know, the Jack Crusher stuff, I think wore a little thin for me um, just because, you know, like hiding that ball, like what is Jack Crusher? Why does everybody care? Um, by the time you got the answer to that, it wasn't that fulfilling, you know, and then he was just kind of like, you know, a plot ball that just got bounced around a lot. But I mean, by the time you get to the the second to last episode and they're back on the fucking Enterprise D. You don't care. You know, yeah. You know, like, listen, I, I worked on season two um, of Picard which, you know, has its merits, but is definitely not season three. And so I know some of the guys over there and I literally texted Terry Metalis, the showrunner. I was like, dude, I'm sitting here in my office crying because they're on the fucking Enterprise D again and they're all there. You know, it's like, not that I, I, I never had a dream that it would happen. Like, who knows? As a, as a fan, you're like, well, th- those days are done. But to like get and get it back on that bridge, they rebuilt that bridge. Like it was, it was weaponized nostalgia. And, and it, it completely, it was, I'm sorry. It was perfectly deployed as well, because it's the one thing I don't think anyone conceived would be possible. So yeah. when it happened, I, you know, I can't, I'm not like these kids. I can't stay up and watch these shows when they drop at midnight. But I was, I was sitting in my family room at five 30 in the morning. And that was happening. And I just, suddenly I was just glued like a little kid watching TV again, but crying like an old man, remembering what it was like to be that kid. Yeah. You know, it just, it, it, it hit me in exactly the right place at exactly the right time. Um, you know, the, the sacrifice of Captain Shaw, who I thought was a fantastic character. And I'm sad that he's gone quite sad because, you know, who knows if they ever make a Star Trek legacy show. I don't know if that's a thing that's going to happen. The internet seems to want it desperately mm-hmm. um you know i would have liked to have seen shaw in that show um because i mean geez like todd stashwick is a fantastic actor that's a terrific character mm-hmm. give me give me more of that all of that which which i would have loved to have seen more of that character because the the things that we got out of him first of all like you said a great actor but some of the elements he brought being an engineer on during wolf 359 and Mm -hmm. how he feels about picard being in the same room with him in some sense is you know that was just way powerful storytelling that i just it smacked me upside the head yeah you know i mean there's there's and there was that moment i think it might be the same episode or maybe it's a previous episode where Jack is talking about, you know, you you discover the time that Jack found his father for the first time, you know, at some pub where it was, you know, some fleet holiday and a bunch of cadets were there and John Picard is eating his fish and chips and they start asking him about things and he's telling the story as, a, as an admiral, talking about how important that, you know, Starfleet is to him and how your crew is your family. 
And then, you know, Jack Crusher, Jack Crusher walks up and it's like, well, you know, what about family? Like, do you ever have any regrets? Do you ever wish that, you know, things had gone differently? Do you ever wish that you had children? You know, and he's like, Starfleet is my family, you know, and just watching that break the heart of a young man who thought he was going to connect with his dad, you know, who just smacked him down without even realizing how hard the blow was, you know, like that's, it, it was all such very deft storytelling. It very much knew um, where it was going. Um, it was, it was careful with the Easter eggs, but they were there and they were plenty. And, you know, I'm sure that there were dreams that they had of getting, you know, Kate Mulgrew back, that there were dreams they had of getting, you know, other various members. I mean, getting Cisco back, getting, you know, not a visitor back to play Kira. Like I'm sure there's, but, and once you build the enterprise D bridge, there's but so much money left in the bank to, to secure, you know, guest stars, but like, you know, having, you know, Admiral Shelby um, as the leader of the, you know, whatever, whatever the name of that day was. Yeah, I want to say Patriots Day, but I know that that's not what it is. No, I, and I should really remember myself because they said it 45 million days, times. Yeah. It wasn't Founders Day. It was something else. No. Um, but uh, that's how relevant it was. <laughs> yeah. Who cares? Um, but, you know, Shelby, who was in, you know, Best of Both Worlds, parts one and two, as the sort of young upstart underneath Riker, who was trying to usurp his position on the Enterprise and to see her back 30 years later as an admiral after all, you know, all of that stuff was great. But it's it's just watching that crew, you know, watching that gang finally back together again on the bridge, finally, you know, skulking through a board cube to like, you know, save a Picard, you know, like all of that stuff is just fun. I mean, my one, my one, the one thing that I was hoping would happen, I understand why it didn't for all of the reasons, but I was hoping that not everybody would make it out of that. You know, I was kind of, I, I was, I was hoping for a bit more wrath of Khan than voyage home, you know, where there was a cost and there was a sacrifice and somebody had to make a choice and it was the hardest choice. Um, you know, and I, I, I could tell you who I think I'd like that liked to have had that person be, um, but and I understand why because it does it casts everything in a different light. If once you go around that poker table at the end of the show, there's an empty seat there, but I still I, I think that's moving to me. I think that that's that's what it costs to do this kind of heroism. That's what it costs to 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 be you know, a member of Starfleet, you know, a member of the Enterprise crew, you have to be willing to make the hard call um, and, you know, roll the hard six, uh, just do it from a different spaceship show. Um, Speaking of a different spaceship show, um, I thought it was interesting. I, I don't think it was intentional, but there really seemed to be some parallels between this episode and some of the things we've gotten from Star Wars, you know, like a particular ship flying in through another particular ship in order to destroy the thing at the center. Yeah. You know, there, there's definitely some Jedi at the very tail end of that. Um, you know, and I think that, that those two, those two universes, especially in the last 15 years or so have kind of cross pollinated a little bit, you know, especially star Wars seeping into star Trek, because I think that's very much what JJ was trying to do with his star Trek was like, let's make it star Wars. Let's make it fun. You know, it's not going to be intensely cerebral. We're just going to like, hold on. It's going to be a bumpy ride, you guys. You know, and to get to see. And they couldn't do that in the 90s on Star Trek because 
the technology's not there to have the enterprise doing fucking donuts and shit in space. <laughs> like we got a sad model and we're just shooting around you guys. We even got some fast and furious in this one, man. <laughs> Liz is like one part second at a time. Um, but I, I, I was, I was incredibly satisfied um, by the end of this finale. It, uh, it checked all the boxes you wanted it to check. It was exciting. It was Star Trek. It was, you know, space battles. You were on the enterprise with these people and, you know, getting to see Worf be a badass who has to nap on the bridge, getting to see Jordy, you know, as a father who's, you know, incredibly painstakingly, you know, careful with his things to the point where, like, when his kids go sort of AWOL, like, he's a broken man. Um, you know, the Riker Troy relationship and how that's sort of metastasized over the years and the death of his son and, the, and how that can fray a marriage, um, to say the least. Um, you know, and then just Picard, like, how can you be useful, you know, at, at an advanced age? How mm-hmm. do you, how are you relevant um, when you are this person? How can you use your worst days to inform your best days? Um, I think all that was really powerful. I think it was all incredibly well handled. And, you know, and, and the show of it all, like, how do you, how do you change what you know to be true with the presence of new information? You know, when do you when do you learn how to trust your gut when the book is the thing you've been going by your entire life? Mm -hmm. Like all of that stuff is great, you know, and being able to kind of marshal it and use it and 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 inform it with the past and the present. Like I thought it's just a fantastic job. Um, And I know we we've kind of talked about a lot of the elements, but, you know, I'm sure as a writer. Well, first of all, I I just have to ask. And if you can't talk about it, because it's too inside baseball, but. When you, when you came on during season two, were you, did they make you aware of the roadmap going in? What would be season three? Um, there were some very early discussions about, you know, and not in any way, we never talked about the next gen cast coming back. That was never part of it. I think that that was, that was, uh, that was decided, um, much later in the in the go, gotcha. but I remember we were just having conversations about like what is the the last best destiny for Jean Luc Picard? Like where should he end his story? You know, should it be surrounded by friends? Should he die? You know, in the chateau in the vineyard? You know, surrounded by his crew? Like, you know, if he's got a positronic body, should he just be on the bridge of a starship for eternity? Is he the last captain? Is he just this this eternal sentinel of the Federation who? You know, if you ever need me, I'll be there. Just send up a flare and I'll come running. You know, like all of those things were discussed early on and nothing had ever been settled on. And clearly, you know, once they decided to bring back the next gen cast, that it becomes a very different conversation. Now, what is all of their fates together? Um, you know, but I think the the engaging with John Luke Picard's past um, was was attractive, you know, you know, the Borg is always attractive. You know, I think, you know, season two was very much about Q and, you know, Q and the Borg are the two great inventions of, of the next generation. Um, we had never discussed um, changelings, you know, and I just loved how much DS9 was in this episode, this season, you know, how much of the, 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 the threats and the lessons and, and the characters are these or it's not. I mean, I wish, again, wish we'd gotten to see Cisco. I wish we'd gotten to see O'Brien. I wish we'd gotten to see, you know, a trill. That would have been great. 
Um, you know, I mean, Worf was on DS9, so that's not insignificant either. But, um, you know, endings are, are a very delicate thing, mm-hmm. um, just as beginnings are. And, and to come up with the way to satisfactorily end those stories and find those places. Um, I just think it's masterful. I've never seen a show um, level up the way this show did. Oh, yeah. You know, seasons one and two are whatever. Um, but I've never seen a show just go from like, okay, to all star <laughs> in the span of one season. But d- does that all come from the writing? Because I know not only did it seem that they had a good story, you know, granted the Jack Crusher stuff, it was a, the pardon the term, but in shows, we tend to get what I call a long, uncomfortable hand job and some plot elements. And that was that for me, but also not only the story but the writing was really good like some of the things they interwove comedy in a way i don't think we really saw in next gen into this one right down to like wharf saying and i'll make it a threesome and then right just <laughs> instantly chiming in do you even hear yourself <laughs> but yeah the story was great my whole point is i thought the writing was great but as a writer you know is it something you came away from going wow they really nailed it oh yeah yeah, I mean, it, it you know, it, to, to harmonize with my my opening speech about the, the writers and the potential strike, it always begins on the page. You know, it always begins on like, all right, what story should we tell? And if you have the right crew of people and if you have the right support from the people with the money, um, you know, be it the network and the studio, then like, you're, you're given license to kind of dream that way. And and once it becomes clear, it's like, guys, we want to bring the next gen cast back. It's like, all right, well, that's going to cost us, but we think it's willing it's worth doing because here's the story that makes it worth doing. You know, we got to rebuild the bridge of the enterprise. All right. Well, that's expensive, but here's why it's worth doing. It you must, know? it must have been worth doing because as I heard, they only had two shooting days on that set. That was it. Yeah. yeah. You know? And so it's a, it's, it's a Herculean effort to make a show that good. Um, especially from the bones of the show that it had been. Um, you know, and there is there is something liberating about knowing that it's the final season, right? Let's just leave it all, put it all in the field, to borrow a sports metaphor. Um, leave nothing in the tank because we don't, it's a one-way trip, guys. We don't have to get back home. We don't have to start this again next year. We don't have to back to one. It's just, this is the end of this story. So what's the best version of this we can do? And I was incredibly impressed that this was indeed the best version that I think anybody could have done. I mean, yeah, I'd have killed a person. Um but that's just me and I'm a little bloodthirsty. <laughs> are you are you not you just absolutely won't say who it was? Because I can, um, I can I take my killed... answer after the show. Oh, by the way, no, it was Frontier Day. The whole chat told us Frontier Day. Frontier Day. Um, I would have killed Picard. Oh. I think. I think I think him sacrificing himself for his son, for his crew, you know, when he plugs himself back into the Borg. You know, I think like he's the virus that gets rid of the Borg and but he can't disengage and he's got to stay and he's got to blow it up from the inside. And and that's the price that gets paid to save everybody else. Um, and at the end of one's road, like, you know, he doesn't need a heroic you know, farewell. But like I am, as I always was, the kind of person willing to make hard decisions um, for the safety of my crew. And this is the biggest one. And it's the last one. And, you know, that, that, that's just me um, because I do, I do like a little bitter with my sweet and that finale is very, very sweet. 
um, especially the less active that show. And so just the like, yeah, we're all a little bit hollow. We're all a little bit empty from this, but he, he chose this. This was his choice. You know, he chose to stare down his own, you know, weaknesses. He chose to stare down the worst moment of his life when he gave, you know, he surrendered to the Borg and lost everything that he was and do it again. But now for the right reason, um, you know, like I think there's something really poetic in that and tragic in that. Um, I think anybody else, you know, killing would have been, you know, Boromir <laughs> dying and like, like, yeah, we feel something, but like, it doesn't, it doesn't feel as crucial to the story. If like, oh man, we killed Data again. Like, all right, you know, we, we killed Worf. It was not a good day to die because it's not his story. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they, they, they tried to prep us for Riker and or, you know, uh, Deanna dying, but like they were always covered in plot armor. They were never going to buy it. Um, I, so I, I also, I also knew they were never going to buy it because the episode where we know they're on the other ship, there's one character you do not see that entire episode. <laughs> I'm just saying, go back and rewatch it, y'all. Um, but no, I, I very much dug it. I very much was impressed by it. Um, and I hope they make more Star Trek like this. You know, I don't, I don't know what any of the plans are for Section Thirty One. I don't know what any of the plans are for Starfleet Academy. You know, I haven't really engaged that much with Lower Decks or, or Prodigy. Um, you know, but I think that that it's we're now at a place, we're now at a point with Star Trek where nostalgia means quite a bit, and I think Strange New Worlds kind of proves it. Like, hey, look, it's. Spock and Kirk and Pike and Uhura. And at some point we're going to get a young checkoff, mm-hmm. you know, like, you know, they're, they're just giving us the classic Trek in a, in a new coat of paint. And I think it works for lots of reasons, but that is not an, not an insignificant part of it. Well, I and know so- you're the newsman, but I can at least share with you that section 31 was announced as a paramount plus exclusive star Trek movie with Michelle Yeoh, mm-hmm. just as we all expected. Yeah, you know, I mean, it's a long time coming. I mean, I think that was supposed to be a series at one point, then it was kind of dead at one point, and now it's back because she has an Oscar, so it makes a ton of sense. But, um, you know, again, I don't know what that is. I think it's interesting. Anything with Michelle Yeoh is always interesting. Um, but just the, the ways that this show engaged with its past um, and with canon, I thought was really smart. And if you can continue to do that, by all means. Somebody should do it. Yeah, it, it was nice. They they brought us some nostalgia, but they didn't hit us over the head with it. No, except you know, for one big us, old starship. Yeah, you know they brought us some like Easter eggs that didn't you know actually require like they weren't plot hinging Easter eggs. You know, and if they were like Rolaren, they gave you the context for it. They explained why. I mean, you know? and and for those of us that are deep cut fans, it, it's just so beautiful because her earring was the point of contention about her, her uniform, you know, mm-hmm. because it's, it's her spiritual belief and like she, Riker admonished her for it, but now it's also the device that she, I'm sorry, I'm not spoiling too much. Yeah. But you know, all of which is to say very much loved, um, the final season and the finale of Star Trek Picard. Um, I liked the finale season finale of Mandalorian. Um, you know, I think we're, we're to a certain degree out of TV to talk about other than I'll say, 
Um, the most recent episode of Ted Lasso is maybe the best episode they've done in, a, in like a season and a half. Um, I think it's better than anything this season, better than anything from season two. Um, I thought it was it was it was just beautiful and wonderful and did all the things I want Ted Lasso to do. It made me laugh. It made me cry. It made me give a shit a little bit about football. Um, but it's just the character stuff, you know, in the previous episode too, like the Amsterdam thing was also a pretty strong episode, but like this one was a just solid out of the park hit. Um, yeah. I, I don't know if you want to hear my opinion on it, Mark. Please do. Cause I feel like I've way overstayed my welcome. Um, but I thought that it, I agree with you completely. It was by far one of the best episodes ever, but the last two episodes in a way, I don't think it was intentional, but in the same way that Ted Lasso as a character comes into this season and was sort of disconnected from everything going, you know, like, why am I here? I almost kind of felt the same way about the show. I'd been complaining to my wife, actually, that the first few episodes, I just, I wasn't connecting with. I'm like, this isn't the show I'm used to. But then first we got the Amsterdam episode and we started getting more into the characters. And then with, with this episode as well, with more emotional hooks. And mm -hmm. a lot of good comedy as well. It just, it really, it played hard. You can, well, you wouldn't ask my wife because why would you? But like, I was <laughs> openly laughing. And then at the end of this week's episode, I was just weeping like a, like a little girl oh, yeah. with a skin knee. Oh yeah. Like it's so emotional and it's so, I'm not going to say obvious, but like, once you see all of the pieces put together, you're like, of course, that's what it is. Mm -hmm. Of course, that's why. Of like, and yes, just weeping, crying like a baby, and then like just tying dicks together, and that's always funny. <laughs> Again, a little spoilerish, but one of the things that was a great joke uh, that happens. Then also, there's an after moment with the ever lovable Roy Kent, where he comes up with a bigger plan to then incorporate tying five or six guys to the one central guy and mm. if you watch the episode later on when there's the revelation and a great team building moment jamie tart essentially puts himself in the middle as the dick that all other dicks are tied to <laughs> yeah it's uh it's so good it's so good and i you know and it's if this is the last season which by all you know reports it is um this is a good way to crest towards that finale, you know, kind of remind everybody why they love the show to begin with. Um, you know, I don't know if that's intentional because nobody sets out to make a bad episode of TV. And I just think that the first couple of episodes just, they lost their way, but these past two have been incredibly energized and I'm, I, I'm very much um, all about this, this last run of Ted Lasso. Um, and yeah, so I think that's 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 the end of review corner. <laughs> Talk about oh. the stuff we've seen. Oh, I will say two things. Maybe one thing. Two things, one thing. I saw a Zisu, Sisu last night. This Finnish um, sort of World War II um, grindhousey movie about this uh, this ex-Finnish commando who finds a big hunk of gold and is trying to like walk it to the bank where he can exchange it for money. Um, and then he gets in uh, in conflict with a bunch of Nazis who are like the the waning days of World War II, who are like they're gonna they're gonna hang us or string us up unless we have the money to to get ourselves out of Germany slash Europe. 
And so they fixate on this old guy's gold. And then it's just him killing them in interesting ways for like 90 minutes. Um, it's, uh, it's not great, um, but it's incredibly enjoyable. And it 100% does not overstay its welcome. It's 90 minutes long. And that's exactly what I want a movie like that to be. <laughs> you know, and coming off of, uh, off of the two-hour and 45-minute John Wick 4, um, there was something beautiful about a 90-minute kind of exploitation action movie. Um, so if you're in the mood, I think it opens this weekend, um, you could do worse than check out Sisu. Um, and also, when you do, if you do, think about that there's probably a version of this movie that's a silent film, because there's so little dialogue as it is, um, that might even be better for it. Um, or at least a dialogue-free film, not sound, because you want all the explosions and blood and guts and stuff, and gunfire and plane crashes and everything. But what dialogue you get, you don't really need. And it would be an interesting exercise to have done this movie without any. Um, so that's that. Um, let's talk a little bit about the things that dropped at CinemaCon. I can't talk in depth about it because I was not there. Um, but let's see. There were first looks at Dune Part 2, um, Martin Scorsese's Killer of the Flower Moon, um, The Fall Guy starring Ryan Gosling, um, Wicked Part 1, the adaptation of the Tony winning play, A Haunting in Venice, the third Hercule Poirot movie, um, new trailer for Willy Wonka, um, there was news that uh, there's going to be a new Transformers animated flick, um, which will star Chris Hemsworth, Brian Tyree Henry, Scarlett Johansson, Keegan-Michael Key, John Hamm, and Lawrence Fishburne. Um, the film apparently will tell the story of how a young Optimus Prime, played by Chris Hemsworth and not Peter Cullen, but whatever, and Megatron, Brian Tyree Henry, who how they went from being brothers in arms to sworn enemies. Um Johansson is vo voicing Elita, who I don't know who it is. Uh, Keegan-Michael Key will be Bumblebee. Ham is Sentinel Prime, and Fishburne will be Alpha Trion. Um, that movie is supposed to come out uh, next July, July 19th, 2024. And finally, there was a screening of The Flash. I think it was still a work in progress. Um, but um, by most estimations, everybody who saw it, um, you know, kind of very much ducked. There, there were some reservations, I think, but nobody would go into explicitly explain why. And thankfully, because, you know, again, this movie is, it's, it's about a month away. And so don't spoil a thing we can't see for a month, but um, it's encouraging, I think. Um, you know, the other thing I guess to talk about a little bit, and it's hard because we don't have all of the data to discuss it with anything um, resembling um, knowledge about the situation. But, you know, Kevin and I have not talked at all about the Jonathan Majors of it all. Um, you know, there's still a lot of information that we don't know. There's still court dates and, you know, all kinds of information that uh, that is supposed to be coming out starting on May 8th. I think there's a court date in New York. Um, it's a story that has not been told. Um, and, and the details of which are currently, you know, a little scattershot, a little salacious. Um, and so that's, I, I don't know what will happen with both him and his legal issues, nor do I know what will happen with Jonathan Majors and Marvel going forward. Um, but it is interesting when you look at the Ezra Miller of it all and then the Jonathan Majors of it all. 
And then you have two people who are at the centers of a giant superhero movie, if not phase of movies, if not events. Um, one of which um, clearly had issues with the law, um, clearly had issues of just woeful and rank impropriety, um, but still got to be in his superhero movie uh, because there was a lot of money on the line. I don't think anybody looking at that situation can say that that's, there is any other reason why um, they hadn't been replaced at the center of that, if it wasn't uh, A, in their minds, good, as far as the studio goes, and B, if they had invested 300 some odd million dollars in it. Um, and on the other side, you have Jonathan Majors, who, again, we don't know much of anything about what happened. It's still a lot of he said, she said. There's been no court dates. There's been no discovery. There's been no revelation of, of much information that seems solid. Um, and Jonathan Majors is in Loki season two. But there's a lot of open debate about whether or not he will still be Kang going forward. Marvel has recast people in the past. Um, nobody quite as central to an entire phase as Kang. Um, but but they are not, they're definitely not above being like, hey, sorry, it didn't work out for you, bro. Um, thanks for stopping by for Iron Man 1. There won't be a next time, baby. Um, so I don't know. It is just, it's curious to me um, what the line is in the sand that studios, that production companies, that audiences will accept um, from the people who star in their superhero movies. What, how, wh where's, what's the difference between one versus the other? Um, what kind of things are we willing to overlook? And, and I don't have an answer to that. I, you know, I just don't, but it's, it is curious to me um, that this is where we are in, uh, in, in this particular genre, in this arena. So apparently the flash is good. We'll see, you know, I'll go see it because I'm going to go see it, but um, it's, uh, it's curiouser and curiouser as the cat says. Hey, Will. I, sorry. I thought my wife, Mike wasn't on. I, I was just going to say, I, I'm all for, at least for a brief amount of time, separating the the artist from the art, if you will. Uh, but I will say that that uh, there's one person, there are three people I trust in this world when it comes to advice on things. Kevin, you, and I know that Straw Hat Goofy, uh, Juju, was also at CinemaCon, and I saw him report. Uh, he wouldn't say much, but he did say that it was good. So that's all I need to hear. And I think it's probably the first DCEU movie that I'm actually caring about. Yeah, you know, and, and it it I'm I've been sold by the trailers, you know, and again, weaponized nostalgia. Like if you're gonna give me Michael Keaton back, who wants to get nuts um as Batman, then then you know, you have my attention. Um and so that's the the bit of it that I'm curious about. If the rest of it holds as a movie you know, then all the better, you know, if they did the work of like, listen, we know we're going to get a certain amount of attention because we got Keaton back. You know, we know we're going to get a certain amount of attention because we got Affleck back. Um, but if the movie underneath it all works, then, then I'm, then you have my curiosity and my attention and my money. Um, but yeah, 
I, 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 I haven't heard anybody say it was awful. I haven't heard anybody just like shooting its open mouth yet. Um, I've just heard that, you know, it's like people say it's good. People say it has some issues. People say they enjoyed it. Um, but we'll find out. in I think it's June, um, mid-June. So fingers crossed. Fingers crossed. CinemaCon seems like a ton of fun. One of these days I'll get out there. Uh, I know Kevin had been planning to, but life had other plans for him. So, um, but, uh, but that's it. That's all. That's all we have to report. Really? Did, um, you, did you want to handle any questions? There have been a few. Sure. Let's do some Q and A. I don't, I don't want to push but... into anything. Uh, one person no. asked a good question that I thought <laughs> relevant to some of the com- uh, topics that we've talked about tonight. Uh, of course their name has, has long, I think it might've been Mark B. And his question is based on everything we've seen, what show is it you would be interested in doing in the Star Trek universe? Um, I suppose I can answer this question because they will never ask me to do a show in the Star Trek universe. Um, my, my representatives, I'm sure will say never say never. There's always a chance, but I think that every story we've ever had in Star Trek has been from the Federation's perspective. It has all been one version of the events that we've seen. Um, and even though we've delved into certain planets and cultures and species and beings and worlds and and all that stuff. The stories have never been told from their perspective. It's always been told from the Federation's point of view or from a Federation uh, Starfleet officer um, interacting with that culture. Um, But I think I'd want to see a Klingon show. Um, and whether it's a Worf show, whether it's a, you know, Klingon history show, whether it's Game of Thrones, but on, the Klingon homeworld, which seems like it's a perfectly right place for chaos and backstabbing and politics and war and, you know, space dominance and all that stuff. Like, I I think there's just a lot of juice there that has never been squeezed. Um, uh, Even though Klingons have been, you know, part of Star Trek since the jump, but we've never, we've never gone under the hood. I mean, next gen went as deep as anybody ever did. Um, And Deep Space Nine got us into, you know, Worf's journey and you know the legends and the lores of you know Kales and and Kor and all that stuff but I think just a Klingon show and then seeing the Federation from a different point of view seeing Starfleet from a different point of view seeing you know what it means to 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 come to conflict with somebody who claims to have the best intentions um but maybe doesn't um you know or at least from their perspective doesn't um, I just think it'd be interesting. I just think it'd be interesting. And I could use some more interesting in my Star Trek other than like more dudes in red and gold shirts sitting behind the bridge of a starship that's lit like an Apple store, you know, just going off and spacefaring and doing the right thing all the time. Now that you say that, I'll, I'll tell you Mark B's example. And that's what he would love to do a Harry Mud show, which could <laughs> angle right into other parts of the Federation or the, the Starfleet or that universe. Yeah, for sure. I think that's it's a big galaxy, and we've seen very little of it. Uh, Wild Samurai has a question, <laughs> and he asks, uh, because these topics have come up and have led to great discussion. Well, actually, I don't know his motivation. I don't know why I'm narrating. What video games are, if any, are you playing right now? Um, I am currently playing the, uh, the Horizon Forbidden West expansion, uh, the DLC, Burning Shores. Um, and I'm always surprised at, because listen, 
you've played video games. You've all played video games, right? We're on this. You're, you're watching me talk about nerd shit. We're all of this age and era. There are what eight, eight, twelve buttons, two triggers, and two joysticks on every controller. That's an insane amount of information to map to your brain and have any context clues for what each one of those buttons do, which is why like, you'll never get my mom playing a video game because she has no idea what to do with 20 buttons and two joysticks and how to make that work. Um, so it's always amazing to me that I could not play a game for like a year and then pick up an expansion or dive back into that game. And it takes about 90 seconds before I remember what all the buttons do without looking them up, without like checking the, the, the pause screen, without going into options or anything. It just, it all kind of clicks back into my mind. And I find that fascinating because um, it's a thoroughly unuseful trait or skill in any other regard, except for playing video games. Um, but that right now is the one that, that I'm sort of into. Um, I'm, I'm unclear if I'm going to play um, Jedi Survivor. I just didn't like that last Jedi game. Um, I just didn't, yeah. The save, it was the save mechanics of it. Like I, I play too much and then die and then get cycled back too far. And it just got frustrating. Like, why am I playing a game that feels like it was, you know, the save mechanics were invented in 1998? Um, as opposed to geez, the constant, you know where I am, you know where I got, just bring me back here. That's cool, right? Yeah. Um, so yeah, I don't know what else is next. I don't know what else is next. Um, I, I, I tend to, to then decide I want to replay a game that I've played before and loved. Um, so I'm not sure if it'll be like third replay of Red Dead Redemption 2 or I haven't played Mass Effect in a long time, but I love that game. Um, or is there another like go through of Last of Us parts one and or two? Um, I do tend to, to to cycle back like your favorite books. Like I know some people read Lord of the Rings once a year. Um, that's a lot of Lord of the Rings to read, you know, every 12 months, but some people do. You know, I think I'm that way with games a little bit. That like the great ones I'll replay over and over again. I could definitely understand that. And I, yes, I every single year, for some reason, I reread the unabridged version of Stephen King's The Stand. Yeah. I mean, people have books that they love and they return to them because they love those stories and they love being in those worlds. And and games do that to me as well, for me. You know, like I'm just not a multiplayer person. I figured that out about five years ago. That like, so yeah, I've got Modern Warfare 2, but I'm never going to just wander in and just start shooting random people and get teabagged by 12-year-olds who are way better at it than I am. Like, that doesn't seem fun. I understand <laughs> completely. <laughs> <laughs> uh first i just want to share with you tim salman says not a question but i just want to say i love black man beyond nothing against kevin but it's wonderful to hear mark have complete well okay let me just stop it there um i, I just <laughs> kevin but let me tell you all these things <laughs> let me like, man that's one of those things where you really should have read head on the prompter ron burgundy anyway <laughs> uh and the last question then so that way we can let mark get back to his evening um which I don't know how to pronounce this person's name. I'm just going to think it says Wyatt Butts. Um, and teeing off of my comment about a book, uh, what Stephen King story would you like to make into a film? Uh, what would it be and why? Um, my 
it's funny, my Stephen King, I think everybody has their Stephen King journey, right? They have their first books they discovered, they have the kind of books that they like, you know, I think the, the Stand is early on for lots of people, Dark Tower is, The Shining, Carrie, Cujo, the, the early books, Misery, if they saw the movie and then went back to, the, to that book and then tendrils spread out. Um, I think my first Stephen King book was Eyes of the Dragon, um, because I think I was a huge Hobbit fan and I had never read any Stephen King, but it's like, oh, wait, this is also has dragons and fantasy. That's cool. Let me try this. And that was my way in. But I have, I have always, for as long as I can remember as a reader, my favorite Stephen King is The Running Man, uh, the Richard Bachman from the Bachman books, Running Man. Um, and since I started writing, as an amateur, not even professionally. It was 10 years before anybody would pay me to write anything in a screenplay format. Um, but I wanted to adapt that um, first as a movie. And then more recently, I wanted to do it as a miniseries. Cause I do think that, you know, the Schwarzenegger movie notwithstanding, like it is what it is and, and as, as, as ever was thus, but as a story, um, as a book, as a novella, I guess you'd have to call it, has a lot to say about the current temper of the world that we're in. It has a lot to say about class. It has a lot to say about race. It has a lot to say about entertainment and the, and the, the preying of the entertainment conglomerates on the, uh, the random viewer, the random citizen, you know, the power of broadcast to unite a people um, and, and desperation. Like what happens when you are on the bottom of the American caste system, which very much exists, um, when somebody gives you an opportunity, is it genuine or is there some nefarious purpose um, behind it? And so, and it's, it's super exciting. Like there's lots of like, you know, cool action stuff. There's lots of great personal stuff. Um, the ending is bleak as fuck, um, but I love it for that. And I think you could probably do that ending now um, in a way you couldn't have done in the past, you know, 15 years, 20 years. Um, but yeah, that's the one that I do. Um, it, it pains me to, to, to have to stare down the barrel of the fact that Edgar Wright uh, had been attached to direct the feature version of that for Paramount. I don't know where that is, if it's still happening. I mean, I like Edgar's work, so I hope it does. I'd like to see that version of it. But I'd also like to tell my version of it. Um, and so until uh, until Edgar's uh, implodes, I'll just have to, to be content to live and watch from the sidelines, um, waiting for somebody to put me in for the NFL draft. Brought to you by Manscaped. See, I could do that too, but you weren't going to get that. But I, I can bring things around and sort of dovetail our ads back into the content. Um, yeah, so, so that's the one. That's the one, Running Man. Um, I don't want to think about the movie that's already existing as much as I want to think about the version that's on the page and in my head. That's the one, Mr. Butts. It's Mr. Butts to you. <laughs> I, it, it, one last question from the guy who just won't get off camera with you. Uh, as a writer, are there some things that, that when you're between projects, but to maybe keep the old muscle going or just from passion do you ever actually write like a spec script for some of, of these projects that you would want to do um i don't 
And that's not to say that somebody else shouldn't, because the first thing that I ever wrote by myself was a spec adaptation of The Running Man. Like I did it just to see if I could do it. You know, didn't have the rights to it. Nobody was paying me to do it. Like I just loved the book and thought it could work. And so I did it as sort of an exercise. Um, you know, the older I would get and the, the, the more I realized that um, trying to make the things that I write able to work for me in as many ways as possible. Um, writing an adaptation, you know, it becomes fan fiction, right? Like, sure, you can write a Batman <coughs> pro story. You can't really do anything with it because you don't own Batman and the odds of getting it to DC or Warner Brothers and then publishing it as a novel or as a short story, or whatever, are, are slim to none. And so you're just doing it for fun, which go for it. Um, but I try to, to, to write things that have the maximum potential of doing more for me. So I'd rather write a new thing that I can either use as a sample to get work, that I can sell as, as a piece of, of material that can then still also get me work. But there's nothing I can do with that script I wrote of The Running Man because, again, don't own it. Somebody could sell the rights right from under me, which they did. Um, and so I think that it's just it's, it's a poor use of time. Um, and so in between the stuff that I'm, you know, actively engaged on and getting paid to write, I'll write stuff for myself. Um, you know, I'll work on, on ideas that, that, you know, I jotted down in a notebook or it flushed out whatever and put more meat on the bones or, you know, but it's, it's, it's rare that I, that I go back to a thing that I've loved and say like, I'm just going to fucking write that. That'd be fun. Wouldn't it be fun? Um, because it does feel a bit like, you know, there's no sex in that champagne room. You know, you are never going to have the time you think you're going to have writing the thing that doesn't belong to you. Um, uh, so yeah, that would be my one bit of advice. You know, if you're, if you want to write a superhero story, don't write a Superman story because there's not very much you can do with that, but invent a character like Superman. Sure. Like file the serial numbers off. Um, that has worked for lots of people, you know, uh, I'm pretty sure that twilight was supposed to be, you know, 50 shades of gray, uh, fanfic or vice versa. I don't remember exactly how the, the entomology of those two worked out, but one of them was supposed to be the, the other thing. And they were like, you know what? Fuck it. What if it's bondage instead of vampires? I think it was the gray after the sparkly right. guys. Sparkle dork vampire. Um, and so like, yeah, if, if that's what you want to write about, if you want to write about, you know, that kind of power imbalance between the sexes, and if you want to write about, you know, sexy time, sexy time, and, and having to leave your family to go off with this dude who seems a little bit kinky, then like, do it, but don't make it 50 shades, make it whatever, 20 blinds, and you're all set. Fair enough. Appreciate <laughs> that insight. No I, worries. Because I think, I think if my memory serves me, one of, one of my... Uh, Die Hard with a Vengeance, I believe, could be wrong, was originally written as a Lethal Weapon movie and then got repurposed. But you know, I, mean, I remember. I think what what I it wouldn't surprise me. I know that there was a spec screenplay called Simon Says that Fox had bought, and then they they hammered that then into Die Hard with a Vengeance. Um, but it also wouldn't surprise me that there was another script out there that they just kind of like. We like this part of this, and we like that part of that, and put John McClane in it, and then it's all good to go. Um, 
that does happen sometimes. But um, but yeah, yeah, man. Awesome. Well, that's I'll, all I got to say about that. Yeah, I'll go away so you can say goodbye to everybody. You know, I, that's all I have to say about that. And I think that's all I have to say about this episode of Black Man Beyond. Um, uh, the next Black Man Beyond episode will be in, uh, I think, next weekend. I'm recording it at the Northern Fan Con in Prince George, um, BC. Uh, I'll be there the, I think it's the 5th, 6th, and 7th, maybe, 4th, 5th, and 6th. I don't know how dates work. Um, but I'll be up there. I will be interviewing um, Emily Swallow, who played the armorer on The Mandalorian. And, uh, and I'll see if she takes issue with any of my criticisms. Um, I hope not, because none of them are personal. They never are. Um, so I'll be up there in Northern Canada for a couple of days. If you happen to live in that particular part of Canada, uh, come say hi. I always have a good time up there. Um, and, and if you are there, come and say hello. Um, we are going to be planning episode 400 of Fat Man Beyond. Hopefully, uh, it'll be in the next mm, two or three weeks, depending on Kev's schedule, depending on when we get tickets up, and depending if you guys decide you want to buy and come hang out at the canteen and celebrate 400 fucking episodes of the Daffy's podcast ever. Um, I feel like it's going to be a good time, but uh, you'll have to be there to find out. Or on the internet, where we're streaming at the same time. I mean, who are we kidding? Um, but I think that's all I have to report, you guys. I think uh, I think that's all that's happening in the world to talk about tonight. Um, thank you so much for spending some time with me on this Thursday evening slash early afternoon slash middle of the night if you're in the UK. Um, not sure when we'll be back, but I hope it's soon. Uh, until that time, um, I have been Mark Bernard, and this has been Black Man Beyond. Uh, tune in next time, same black time, same black channel. Smodcast.com or youtube.com slash Kevin Smith. Just kisses for the good of all Cree. May the force be with you. Uh, I can't that hand do it right. I don't know. Anyway, live long and prosper, you guys. Peace out. This has been a Smodco Internet Production. Sip only at Smodcast.com. <laughs>